Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Each weekday, we dig into one important story, and on today's show, our very first, the American middle class. On paper, they're actually doing just fine. So why are they so worried? You know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? There's George Bailey, the dutiful savings and loan manager in It's a Wonderful Life and the very model of middle-class aspirations. A classic since 1947. I still watch it every December. Ever since the post-war economic boom, middle-class workers aspiring for a better life have been the backbone of the U.S. economy. Sure, we'd all love to be billionaires, but a nice home, a stable job with a bit left over to put away for the future, middle class is what a lot of Americans have aimed to be. Every politician, right and left, claims to be a champion of it. Our economy doesn't work as well or grow as fast when a few prosper at the expense of a growing middle class and ladders for folks who want to get into the middle class. Pop culture is squarely aimed at it and pokes fun at it. I need cash for food and gas, like like posters, beer and grass. Time for me to join the middle class. That's Homer Simpson, who somehow supports a family of five on a nuclear power plant worker's salary. And then there's all the companies who have long courted the middle class for its disposable income. It's only good common sense. Why be stuck with one expensive car when you can enjoy all the fun and freedom of two fine Fords? For generations, though, racial discrimination and the persistent wealth gap have kept many Americans of color on the outside. Here's a clip from Still a Brother, a 1968 documentary about black middle-class Americans. I'd like to live in, in a tree-lined street. I'd like to uh, have a summer home on the lake. I like to wear suits from Brooks Brothers. Uh, all Americans, and I am an American, we think this way. For people working their way up, it's not always easy to get into the middle class. And for those who do, not always easy to stay there. And now here comes inflation and a shaky housing market and a possible recession to make it even harder. Which raises the question, is being comfortably middle class still comfortable? Or is the idea losing its meaning? My colleague Sean Donnan has been wrestling with these very questions, and he's here with some answers. Happy to have Sean Don in here. He is Bloomberg senior economics writer. Sean, you and our colleagues, Alex Tanzi, Claire Ballantyne, and Ariel Lowe, have written a big story about the middle class and what they're facing in this kind of very tumultuous period. 
I kind of want to just start out by asking you, what is the middle class? Because it's kind of a mushy thing. We all have a feeling of what it is, but as a writer about economics, how do you define it? Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. It's an amorphous thing, and it's something that we all have a different definition of in a lot of ways. We set out to try and put some hard boundaries on it. So what we did is we worked with a group of economists at the University of California, Berkeley, who have some really great work tracking both income and wealth in America. And that second part is really important because we don't often talk about it in the mainstream media when we're talking about the middle class. We often think about income, what people earn in any given year. And on the income side, there's about 100 million people who we think of as the middle class between somewhere between $145,000 a year and $180,000 a year per adult, not per household, per adult. All right, so if you're making $45,000 a year, give or take, that's somewhere around like $23, $24 an hour, yeah. depending on how many hours you work and vacation and all that kind of stuff. And that gets you into the middle class, right? I mean, and there's actually 50% of the country, there's more than 100 million people who are going to make less than you at that level. But that gets you into like the income level of middle class, right? It, but if exactly. you lose your job, you could fall out. So middle class has another peak. Absolutely. And that's the whole thing that over the years we've talked a lot about this idea of the hollowing out of the middle class, a stagnant middle class, and we've really been focused on income. What we've often missed is the wealth side of things. And that's all the stuff that you own, whether it's the, the equity that you have in your home, whether it's your retirement savings, whether it's the portion of your car that you own, it may even be your TV. But to get into the middle class, it's people who earn between $45,000 and $180,000 a year. And it's people who also, and this is the important part, have between $100,000 in savings and assets and a million dollars in assets. So it gives you that cushion so that if you lose your job, you don't necessarily fall out because you have something to fall back on. And I think we can all agree that one of the key definitions of being middle class is economic security, right? It's a level of I can deal with emergency payments. It may be hard. Car repairs cost a lot, and we all have struggled to pay them. But at the same time, I have some savings. I feel like you know, worst comes to worst, I may be able to sell my home, you know, and I may have the assets that are there. If I can tap into that equity in the home, as many people did during the pandemic, when you saw this huge boom in, in mortgage refinancing, and I can use that money to pay for my kids' education. I can do home repairs with that money. I also have retirement savings that, that I can lean on. But that wealth component is really important. And what's really important to think about in terms of the economic health in the middle class is what's happened to that wealth component, particularly over the last 10 years or so. So now you've, we've defined the middle class, and these are some pretty difficult economic times. Uh, we've got high inflation, housing values are, you know, uh, in flux. Uh, how is the middle class feeling? Are they feeling like they could wind up losing it all? So there's two answers to that. The first is, how are they doing? What does the data tell us in terms of how are they doing? And then we also went out and we did some polling to ask, how are they feeling? So on the how are they doing part, some people may not want to hear this. This may not fit with the dominant narrative. But the American middle class, based on the wealth data in particular that we have, has never been richer than it was earlier this year. In March of this year, the average wealth of those 100 million people in that middle class topped out at around $393,000. That's $393,000 in net worth. That's 
$120,000 more than it was in January of 2017 when President Trump came into office. And it's something that's accelerated over the last couple of years during the pandemic as a result, largely because of housing prices and also the stock market boom that we had until this year. So people were just earning a lot on their investments. They were seeing their savings rise. They were able to contribute more to 401ks. Their houses were going up. It was just good times. Absolutely, until March of this year. And then what happened is the Federal Reserve started fighting back against inflation, started raising interest rates, and we've seen the slowing in the economy that's come since then. And that has had an impact on wealth as the stock market has turned and also as property values have started to turn as well. And today, according to these economists at the University of California, Berkeley, and their calculations, the American middle class is worth about $25,000 less than it was in March of this year. And that is a bigger, and just to put that in perspective, that's a big, that's about a 7% decline. And it's a bigger decline than we saw during the pandemic just a couple of years ago. And it's in fact the biggest decline we've seen since the Great Recession. So if you ask then the middle class about how are they feeling? Well, they will tell you that their personal circumstances are pretty good. That's what your polling found. And that's what our polling found. We did this poll with Harris. Uh, We went out, and over a month, we asked questions to people in that specific target demographic that I talked about beforehand around the country. And what we found was you ask them about their personal circumstances, and they're feeling pretty good. There's got to be a but in here someplace. And there is a big but in that. And that is that you ask them about how the next year is going to be, and they're feeling a little shaky right? Because they're starting to see it. People are starting to look at the 401ks. They may look at Zillow and look at what their property valuation is doing. And they're starting to see that turn. And in fact, when you then ask them about the broader economy, the words that come up are things like anxious, stressed, depressed. Just 26%, in fact, told us that they were feeling optimistic about the U.S. economy. So we have this kind of paradox when it comes to the middle class right now. The numbers tell us Earlier this year, they were richer than they had ever been, on average. And yet now they're feeling pretty anxious about how things are turning. Sean, one person you spoke to is Tom Maley, and he fits what you're describing. Tom is a 71-year-old retired optometrist. He lives in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio. He's lived there for years. He spent 25 years in the military working as an optometrist in the military and then went into private practice. He has uh, three grown sons. He is that classic empty nester. In fact, he retired right on the eve of the pandemic. Let's listen to how Tom describes what he's feeling like right now. My wife and I retired about three years ago. Our goal was to travel and uh, be entertained. This is uh, deja vu all over again with the inflation. Uh, My generation started our careers in the late 70s, early 80s, when inflation at one point was 13%, and uh, we're reliving this one more time. So inflation plus uh, taking out required minimum distributions at a probably loss, that's rather disconcerting. So as you hear there, Tom's at a different stage in his life. He's later on in his life. He's enjoying his retirement. He is also looking out at the lives that his kids are are, are living, and he has eight grandkids between his three sons. So he's thinking through, he's thinking further down the line in terms of what life is going to look like for them. I'm not sure that uh, even though my sons and spouses are well-educated and earning a good living, 
I'm not really quite sure they can afford to put uh, their children through uh, advanced degrees like I was able to do with my own children. That is a concern that weighs heavily on me. I want to bring in one other person you spoke to, and her name is Gail Bennington. So Gail is a retired psychologist. She is married to a retired public school teacher and basketball coach. They live just outside of Lansing. uh, In Michigan. In Michigan. And she's an interesting character in that she will tell you that she started cutting back spending during the pandemic. And she's just living her pandemic life now. And that's her kind of new reality sort of adjusted for inflation, if you will. Let's listen to what she had to say. I've always been like this, too. I think you just have to worry about where your money is going. And so I never really spend anything without being quite aware of, is this the best deal I can get? Is, Is there any way that I can save money doing this? And frequently, do I really need this or do I just want it? So are Tom Maley and Gail Bennington typical of what you found when you reached out through the poll and when you started talking to people about their experiences? No, absolutely. So Tom and Gail, like other respondents to the poll, are really interesting, in particular when it gets to talking about their kids and the future that they see. And this is something that we've talked about a lot in America in terms of views of the middle class. Okay, it's one thing to be in the middle class, but what do I expect my kids? And it was always like the American dream was— You know, the cliche is every generation, the parents want their children to do better than they did. Absolutely. Now, I think this gets into a little bit into partisan politics. So Tom is a Republican. Gail is a Democrat. And they have a different take on where the economy is going. We see that in the polls. Republicans tend to be more pessimistic than Democrats, who are much more optimistic about what lies ahead. But both Republicans and Democrats tend to be actually in in this middle class cohort, tend to be really quite optimistic about the future they see for their kids and the expectation that their kids are going to do better. And in fact, Gail is really interesting in that she's got a daughter. She will tell you that she grew up and they were fairly frugal growing up. They lived in a middle-class suburb of, of Lansing, but that they were probably at the bottom end in terms of income because her husband was a public school teacher rather than a manager at a big company, and that they lived a fairly frugal life. And in fact, their daughter is a 24-year-old biomedical engineer in Gail laughs because her daughter now is earning more than her husband ever did as a public school teacher as a 24-year-old engineer and, by the way, is spending a lot more and a lot more freely than her mother ever did. And so Gail will say, you know, we're at this good place in life where we're going to survive. We've got enough stashed away for retirement. We've got our home and we're not going to be a burden to our daughter who, by the way, is already enjoying a better life than we ever did. For my daughter, I think that she will end up being the kind of person where if she wants something, she'll be able to get it. And I've never felt like that, even though I probably could. I mean, I could. I could just go out and get something if I wanted it. I could just go out for dinner if I wanted to. But I don't do that. I'm always aware of I have a budget. I have a strict budget. And and so I think that's being middle class, always being aware of can I really spend this money. When we come back. My conversation with Sean Donnan continues. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a chance to forget that we're a lower middle class neighborhood living under the flight path of the Orlando airport and trick people, <laughs> trick people into thinking we're a scary upper middle class neighborhood that people would want to visit and get candy from. I'm back with Sean Donnan. That clip from the sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, where the character Lewis, played by Randall Park, is touching on our complicated feelings about home ownership. Sean, earlier you mentioned something really important, which is one of the things that allows the middle class to build wealth and to feel good, even in uncertain times, is that they own a home. And the thing that you and our colleagues found in reporting and writing this story is that home ownership seems to be the cornerstone of the middle class. Absolutely. And it's, you know, about two-thirds of American households live in a house that they own. But that has a huge impact on the wealth of a family, right? And we've just seen what is a remarkable period in terms of wealth accumulation, mainly because of that property wealth. In 2012, Americans had about $9 trillion in home equity across the country. This is middle class, this is all, all folks. This year, that's topped out above $29 trillion. We've added $20 trillion in wealth just associated with property in the last decade, which is a remarkable number. And that is what is behind that wealth of the middle class to a large extent. About 36% of the net worth of the middle class is tied up in property, is that home equity. Then you get retirement savings and, and other things. But that's the biggest component of 
wealth for folks in the middle class. The big question we have now, and we see this really, especially among younger Americans and folks who are lower income, is that you have this divide in America between a renter class and a homeowner class. And that may, in fact, be the most pertinent class division in America, both now and going forward. And the other but, since there's always one of them, is that even people who own a home were able to buy it at a lower price perhaps years ago. They also have concerns because so much of their wealth is in their homes that they're housebound. The things you see in a recession, and economists will tell you this, is that you see mobility slow down. People stop moving. And one of the reasons, especially when housing prices turned down, and we saw this in 2008 and 2009 when we had the housing crash then, is the value of the homes dips below what you may own on a loan. We're less at a risk of that now, but what we are at a risk of is this perceived wealth, this paper wealth, taking a big hit and affecting how people behave in the economy. And secondly, if someone is transferred for work, and Tom Maley ran into this with one of his sons, all of a sudden they may be going from a low interest rate mortgage to a much higher interest rate mortgage, and that may change their lifestyle, the type of home they can afford, and so on. Also difficult to take money out of the house in the form of a home equity loan if you hit a rough patch because those interest rates are really high too. Absolutely. So one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was an enormous boom in refinancing, a lot of people lowering their monthly payment, but also taking out some of that equity and using that to essentially to keep up in a lot of respects. And we're going to see that change. Another person quoted in the story is Brandy Romero, and she talks about this kind of conflict between owning a house and not being able ever to move from that house. Yeah, no, so Brandy Romero is really interesting. She moved from Louisiana with her husband and now five kids a few years ago. Uh, they live in Wyoming, just outside Casper, Wyoming, and she's got literally millionaires uh, and a YouTube star moving in around the corner and, and building big houses, and she's in her home, and they bought it recently, and, and they're starting to wonder whether this may be the last home they ever buy and, and how they're going to make ends meet going forward. Brandy is a member of that middle class. She's also, at night, driving Uber and Lyft to try and make ends meet. Earlier in the show, we heard from some older people. Our senior producer, Catherine Fink, went out to talk to people in their 20s and 30s about this idea of home ownership, whether they own a home or if they think they'll ever be able to afford one. I don't own a home, so I think middle class people often rent and don't own a home, so I see myself there, yeah. It took a, a while of saving. It also took basically moving. I used to live in the Bay Area and moved to a place where I was able to buy a home. At some point, but it's not happening in, in any near future. I would have to switch careers and not go to school. Yeah, I'm 25 and I still live at my parents' place because where I want to move is too expensive for me to realistically go there. Uh, so it's either going to a bad place or staying with my parents. To buy a house, in the way that uh, I am now, it would take like uh, three or four lives. So I will <laughs> need to see what I can do to, to make that happen. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work 
passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how I describe the economic and social classes in this country? The upper class keeps all of the money, pays none of the taxes. The middle class pays all of the taxes, does all of the work. The poor are there just to scare the shit out of the middle class. <laughs> Keep them showing up at those jobs. I'm back with Sean Donnan, and that, of course, was a legendary George Carlin capturing those tensions between those at the bottom and the middle and those at the top. So, Sean, I guess uh, the big question now is, what is the future of the middle class? Um, one of the economists you spoke to at Berkeley, Gabriel Zuckman, says that maybe the idea of the middle class is a notion that has come and gone. Yeah, and Gabriel makes a, a really interesting point as well, which is that wealth has kind of protected the middle class since the 1980s and the growing wealth. So in the 1980s, wealth, the average wealth of American households was about three times a year's worth of salary, right? A year's income. Recently, that's gone up above six times. And if you think about that, you start to think about, okay, how that has insulated the middle class in particular who have really benefited most from this property boom and this growing wealth that we've seen, how that has insulated them from some of the harder realities that we've seen in terms of stagnant median incomes, the way the economy has changed, and so on. And Gabriel's point is we're coming to the end of that era, possibly, and that's the big test in the years ahead. So we're entering this prolonged period of inflation, almost certainly going to result in a recession. Uh, the Federal Reserve and other policymakers are trying to get their arms around it, throwing every tool they've got. How is that going to affect this wealth that is kind of the backbone of the American economy? So this is this interesting economic moment that we're at. 
inflation attacks the income of the middle class. It, it attacks the paycheck that you get. To fight that inflation, when you raise interest rates, you're affecting asset prices, the stock market. You're affecting the property market and so on. And so we're at this curious moment where to fight the inflation that's attacking American middle class paychecks, the Federal Reserve is actually going to be destroying some of that wealth of the American middle class by slowing down the property market, by slowing down the stock market, and so on. And that wealth is going to go down for some time. How long? We don't know. That depends on the resilience of the American economy. That depends on how long it takes to, to bring inflation down closer to where the Fed wants it to be, the kind of healthy levels. But that's the episode we're going into for the American middle class. You know, my paycheck may go further at the grocery store, but my home is going to be worth a little bit less than it was. Sean, what about people who are at the bottom, who are trying to work their way into the middle class, hoping to get to that, you know, bottom rung of the middle class and are having a really difficult time doing that because wages are just not keeping up with inflation. So one of the things we've seen in the pandemic is a rise, an increase in inequality. And a lot of what's been behind that has been the burden that has been felt by folks in lower income jobs and how they've been hit in the pandemic. We've seen incomes rise coming out, but we haven't gotten away from this basic structural issue in the U.S. economy, which is if you are in the top 1% in this economy, you have had a great couple of decades. If you're in the bottom 10%, the bottom 50% actually, in the U.S. economy, you've been struggling and you're going to continue to struggle for some time. Just some numbers to think about. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the wealth of that middle class and how they were wealthier than they had ever been in March of this year. That wealth was $393,000 on average for that 100 million people in the middle class. You take that to the 2.5 million people, that much more elite group who are in the top 1%, their average wealth in March of this year was almost $20 million. You look at the bottom 50%, 125 million people almost, their average wealth was just $12,000 this year. The reality is we still have this fractured economy. That middle class may be strong. The path to the middle class is still incredibly difficult because there are still a lot more people than there are in the middle class sitting below them in that bottom 50% of the U.S. economy. And yet we have corporate profits that are really high. A lot of that money is going to shareholders in the form of stock buybacks, and um, we're minting a whole lot of billionaires. And yet some of that profit could potentially be going to increase wages, which would then elevate people possibly into the ranks. Yeah, we briefly had that conversation coming out of the pandemic about maybe this was labor's moment. Maybe people, wages were going to rise. The problem is they haven't kept up with inflation, and we know that corporate profits have outstripped inflation in a lot of regards. So the middle class, that bottom 50% of the economy, have borne the brunt of inflation, and companies have continued to mint those profits. Now, we'll see what happens as we go forward, as the economy slows down, as the Fed slows things down in the economy, what happens to corporate profits. In a traditional recession, you would see those get squeezed, and people at the top get squeezed as well. But the sad fact of the American economy is that when times get tough, it's usually the people at the bottom of the economy who suffer most, and it's that pathway to the middle class that gets broken. 
Is the idea of the middle class uh, still a relevant thing? Is it something that we should be thinking about as a real segment of the economy more than, you know, a notion? Like, is Zuckman right about this? That's an enormous question. It's a really hard question to answer. But I think one of the things we need to remember is that the American middle class and the idea of it, while it's been celebrated in popular culture, while it's been celebrated in economics and so on, has always been been amorphous, it's always been self-interested, and it's also often been kind of exclusionary. You know, that middle class in American popular culture is a pretty white middle class through the years. And we know that some of the key components of it, such as housing wealth, that not all parts of the American population, the black population in particular, have had the same access to that over the years. So it may be time for us to kind of park that idea and move on and think more specifically about people's circumstances, that idea of renter versus homeowner, that idea of college graduate versus high school graduate, uh, that idea of a rural American versus an urban American, uh, and so on. But you know, we may want to have that debate, but I think Americans for a long time are going to be identifying as middle class, are going to have this aspiration to join the middle class, because at the end of the day, it's a pretty good place to be. Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Folero. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.